Adam, can you hear me? I can hear you. Can I you can hear you. Hear you? Uh, what happened? Did it die? It, I, 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 it, it died instantaneously. I tried to... Uh, yeah, it died instantaneously. So, all right. So, yeah, I, I see Tom is here, which is great. Um, and let me just, I'm, I'm going to just tweet out the link, Adam. Yeah. And then, folks, we're going to get going here in just, just a second or two. But you need, you need, like, some intro music or something. I don't know. I, 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 I've, got, like, I've got a lot of requests for... for, for uh, More production values? Uh, just a little bit. Hey there. Should we have a soundboard for a few of these things? Uh Hey, Tom, good to meet you, and I'm, I'm delighted that you installed the mobile app just for this occasion. Yeah, I'm very honored. Who, who is this speaking? This is, this is Adam. Adam, nice to meet you, too. Well, the thing is great is that, like, Tom is a Twitter employee, and, it, it, <laughs> I, I, and it, uh, we were able to do something that his own W-2 could not achieve. Get him to install the Twitter app, uh, which I thought was pretty cool. I have a strong aversion to apps in general. Yeah. yeah, I can't blame you. And thank you for uh, for highlighting the right folks. And I saw Tom Kilalea joined. Tom has also been uh, pinged a bunch of the Twitter spaces folks, which is great. I had a really good conversation with them actually last week, and they've got which is was fun. So fortunately, where they want to take things is exactly where we want them to go to facilitate conversations. With them. So it's be fun. So Adam, are we are we recording? Are we are we. Uh... As far as I know, I'm rec we're recording. I, I see the thing bouncing around on my computer, so it seems to be recording. And I, I feel like there are a couple of like fish fans holding up their their rec like tape recorders up in the audience, according to some Twitter mentions yeah. I've gotten. So I'm delighted to hear that if my recording fails, someone else might have. Them Excellent. Okay, that's great. So uh, so this is not going to be. And Tom, I know you went to a like anniversary of Spark. Like what was it? The thirtieth anniversary yeah, of Spark. Yeah. Uh huh. So that was like four years ago. How um how how uh, uniformly positive was that? Because I don't feel this is going to be uniformly positive. <laughs> Just oh, no. yeah. I well that go ahead. That was uniformly positive, except except for you know people. Who don't like Oracle? Right. Yeah. 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 Of course. Of course. That, yeah. That, <laughs> that's, that's just red meat. Yeah. Of course. But the but I feel like I I don't know. I feel I have a complicated relationship with Spark. I don't know. I, I don't know, Adam. It, what you what you kind of felt, Tom? What you felt about it? But there are things I really love. It was an amazing. It was an amazing achievement for its time, but there were some nasty trade trademarks made, trade offs made. So, and, and Brian, before we get yeah. to deep, it's, it's probably worth, uh, you know, as, as we get to five o'clock, just mentioning how we got here uh, and, and the inspiration for this Spark themed. Uh, Spark themed days. Yeah. So we got here because um, the we uh, in Illumos, with it, which uh, has inherited the Solaris and System 3 and 4 heritage uh, before it, um, Illumos is turning off the Spark support. We are de supporting Spark, which I thought was a kind of a non event. But um, it ended up being like a top hacker news story, so it's like, okay, and I get, and I can see why. I mean, I can understand why, I, because it, it's more for what it represents, of course. Um, but we, uh, you know, it was it, it was it was a struggle to uh, to maintain Spark support for for Illumos, for the, the the developers, and no one really had a Spark box, and I guess they've become very expensive on eBay because they are, and I mean, rightfully so. They're they're, uh, they're they're good boxes. I mean, from a an SS two is still the most rugged thing that humanity has ever built. Prove me wrong. <laughs> um, 
Spartation 2, those of you who, uh, uh, and Tom, were you still at Sun with the SS2 was developed? Is that? Uh, I don't even remember. <laughs> I was definitely there. Probably SS1 was like 89, so I left in 94. So there was plenty of time for more stuff. Oh, okay, yeah, definitely. All right, so the, and so Adam was asked about the origin, so that we thought, you know, this would be an appropriate requiem for, for Spark um, because the, I know that NetBSD will still support it and so on, but uh, it's, it's an opportunity to reflect back on our, our wounds. Um, Tom, I have to ask you about a story that Steve Chesson told me that I would love to know whether it's true or not. I'm not sure if you're going you're gonna to be able to speak to the veracity of one or another. There, yeah. there is no photography allowed in the Bring Up Lab. Back in, back in the day, you'd go to the, in the SMCC lab, it, there's a big, like, no-flash photography. <laughs> And the way Steve Chesson told it to me, they all gathered for a group photo around campus, which was the first SS1, I believe. Right, right. Someone took a group photo, and the, the actual packaging was not on the CPU. And the, it began to, after the group photo, flash photo, began to glow white as all of the <laughs> electrons had been excited, all the electrons absorbed their new energy, turned into a giant conductor and bricked the first CPU, is what Steve Chasson told me. I, I have not heard that story. I thought it was just gonna be for spy potential because you know people would always put these giant circuit diagrams on the walls. Right. So it'd be easy to take pictures. Right. Well, that's why I remember asking Steve about it, because it felt a bit out of Sun's character. Sun did not seem to care that much about industrial espionage. That seemed to be, yeah. <laughs> that seemed to be pretty low well, on the concerns. Um, in, until, until somebody stole all the source code. Uh, somebody stole all the source code. There, uh, uh, yes, we, we could do the, uh, there were a couple of acts of industrial espionage that were, uh, yeah. I was, um, so uh, Tom, do you want to maybe talk about your, some of your first exposure to Spark? I definitely want to, like, first of all, this, this, <clears throat> this wake is not going to be complete without talking about some of the real causes of the eCash parity error. So I just want to, uh, to brace any and all attendees. If you were a Sun customer of a certain vintage, your eye begins <laughs> to twitch when the eCash parity error is mentioned. So we'll, we'll be hitting on, on the Spark bugs too, but maybe Tom, you can kick us off with some of your first exposure. So for those of you who don't know, uh, Tom is employee number eight at Sun, right, Tom? Right. And you- Yeah, so- Yeah, go ahead. So, so my direct Spark involvement was really at the very beginning, uh, making sure that I/O architecture was possible, you know, I/O interrupts, that kind of stuff. And then uh, I really didn't have much to do with it after that, other than it being one of one of the many processors in the fleet, because we had all the sixty-eight thousand stuff. We had three eighty-six for a while. You know, so. Processor architectures were always coming and going from my point of view. Interesting. But, Spark was just kind of one of the mass for you. Yeah. But but the amazing thing about Spark is the the first Spark was not the Spark Station 1. Right. That that was a fairly advanced system. But there it was a Sun 4 board that was just like the Sun 3s. And the, pro, the processor chip for that was really just gated gate arrays. So it was really amazing that they could get the clock speed up and the rest of the processor was so freaking simple that it, it hurt the architecture for a long time 
And how fa- Spark was 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 this one of the the brief moment in which Spark had a faster clock than the competition? A time that Adam and I don't really recall that clearly. <laughs> yeah, um, I don't recall any of the numbers either. Or but it it was a heck of a lot better than what we could get out of Motorola. Interesting. So I so, that, so my first Spark I think was it was twenty five megahertz coming out i think i had my 16 megahertz 386 sx and it was 25 going to 40 on ss1 if that makes sense um and that's as an undergraduate um and but i to me what was compelling about spark well i I, did you have favorite features about spark tom in those early days from a software perspective oh favorite oh god no it was I never did like the register when. Okay, here we go. We got right there. That's good. That's good. We went right there. Okay. Cool. So you it, you do not like register windows. Tell me why. Oh, it's just too hard to to deal with the interrupts and the spilling and predicting performance and blah blah blah. Um, but but the mind-boggling thing about that most people don't know about the first Spark is that there was no integer multiplier divide. There was. Wait, really? 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 So. That's, so did it, did it trap on those instructions? Yeah, go on. How did that work? Yeah, yeah it, it would trap on the instructions. And, and it turns out most, most uh, multiplies and divides in source code are by some constant. And so the c- compiler could, could optimize those pretty nicely. I feel so decadent. I've just been sprinkling multiplications around my code for years. Just right. wet, wetting some trap handler, clean them up. Right. Yeah, so exactly. so, so that's, that's an example of how far they had to go to squeeze this thing down. Well, and Tom, was it, so was it tr- true at that time then POPC, the population count instruction was in silicon, but multiple integer multiplication was not? I, I'd be surprised if POPC was POPC was definitely not silicon. Yeah. Wait, not, not, not ever. It was, it was always, oh, later. Yeah. I didn't think POPC was ever, I wasn't like the running joke that that's all the NSA wanted. And I thought Popsy wasn't implemented in Spark. Yeah, I, I, it, it was oh. an instruction. Yeah, so Popsy oh. is an instruction in Spark, and certainly yeah. by the time I got the Sun in uh, two thousand two thousand one, it was a trap. And I was told, you know, as neat as it sounded, to to not use that as an instruction because it wasn't going to help anything go faster. Um, but I assumed at some point it had been silicon, but maybe Popsy had had just always been, uh, you know, all, always trapped into the kernel. That was the NSA instruction, oh. was my understanding. Yeah. Ooh, Tom, is that your yeah, understanding? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. Actually, I, I, I've been reading about the the stretch machine and harvest at the NSA, and it, it was all the same pop count stuff from the early 50s. I never understood how you could use Popsy to uh, to perform evil or to intervene in foreign civil wars, but apparently you can. I don't know. I, 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 that never really made sense to me why Popsy was That's used why... for dastardly deeds. That's why you're not a spook. That's true. This is why I, I couldn't hack it because I don't. Right, do you right. want me to? Do you want me to see if I can find out from Belvin Blaze or somebody else like sure. that? Sure. Yeah. 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 <laughs> I'd be. I'd be curious to know what the uh, why Popsy is uh, is so nefarious. But so yeah, I, I don't think it's everyone in Silicon, but I may have been wrong. So the all right, so Tom, you did not hmm. like register windows because you had to go deal with them because dealing with the, the and this was the debate between. 
Roger Faulkner and Jeff Bonwick at Sun about register windows. And Tom, you should know that you were on the, the, now the late Roger Faulkner. You're, Roger and you would have seen eye to eye because Roger's view on register windows were that they were horrific because he was implementing slash proc and having to deal with actually debugging these things and dealing with spill traps and all of the, the, the under the covers machinations required to get register windows to work. But Jeff's perspective was, these are great. Like I need some registers. I just like save. And then I restore later. <laughs> yeah, and like, yeah. yeah, it's like, I get it. It's a problem for someone else, but you know what? That's your problem. That's not my problem. Yeah. Yeah, if, if you're trying to look into some other other process and look at the stack, it's like, well, good luck with that. Well, yeah, the, the, yeah. Sorry, Adam, go ahead. Or, or, or trying to diagnose performance pathologies as you're fluctuating between you know spill and fill traps. Right. Yes, right. Adam. I mean, we, we've got to talk about Detroit Fish about the. As, I mean, go, I mean, obviously that's 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 the whole point. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. Sorry, sorry, here. Go ahead, please. That's right. Well, I mean, uh, so. So register windows, just for the uninitiated, you know, uh, Spark has a bunch of registers, way more than 32-bit x86, and uh, and then more that you could even see. So you would you would save to rotate through the windows and restore to rotate back, so that every time you get a new function call, you'd get a whole new collection of, of registers, and the old uh, the output registers from the function that was calling you become the input registers for you. So it was, it was sort of neat, and I don't know if Brian. This is your feeling as well, but like just, it just is great. And then as you dug into it, it had all these pathologies. Like you had a fixed number of registers, and if your function needed more or needed less, you couldn't you can adjust that. And you're using resources inefficiently. Blah 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 blah. But um, as as Tom was alluding to, when you want to know the state of some other process or some process that's running, you have to flush those register windows to the stack to, to memory to be able to recover the stack stack trace. And and so in Dtrace, we often wanted to know the value of registers buried in the stack trace. Now, so Brian, what, for, for Dtrace fish, what problem were you trying to solve? Because I think it was slightly different than, than what I was trying to solve. I, I was trying to do the same kind of thing. That, like I wanted to, to, without causing a spill trap, I wanted to actually go grab a, I think I just wanted to go grab the stack pointers without actually causing a, a spill, if I recall correctly. That's right. And you were, you're, that's right. You were doing it, I think, for kernel registers. That's right. Maybe. And I, and I was doing it for user registers. So um, one of the other kind of esoteric characteristics, or, or at least now esoteric characteristics of the Spark instruction set was the delay slot. So you would take a branch, and then the instruction after the branch would also execute. So we had sat around at, in the kernel, uh, kernel development team, we sat around at the lunch table talking about how crazy it would be to have a branch that executed right after a branch. Am I misremembering this? Like, I remember talking about this all the time and how it would be a nifty mechanism. Well, yeah, in yeah. particular, if you have a branch in the slot, it is, so you've got the instruction, the, the delay slot follows a branch. That is always executed unless it's a branch always a null, in which case it's not executed. <laughs> the, and the, if the instruction in the slot is itself a branch, then you, that's called a DCTI couple, and you execute the target of the initial branch, and then you execute the target of the second branch. And what... Sorry, and and I just read, I was reading some papers wow. this weekend on Spark in this, um, in this, you know, light some candles and really enjoy it. But uh, that apparently conditional, you couldn't put a, uh, a 
branch in the delay slot of a conditional branch. That's Apparently right. that was illegal by the instructor. Okay, I, you, you knew that. I didn't. But I, not that I ever needed such a thing. But uh, well, but it was a, kind of an interesting quirk. So do you remember when, the, when the author of Kernst came out to give a kernel technical discussion? Uh, yes, and he had done yes, he had done some things that are like you know fine for an academic project, but were never going to work in a production setting. And he had done some uh, instruction instrumentation that wouldn't always work. And we were actually wondering whether he was going to work at Sun. And one of the junior engineers, I mean, very junior, was like twenty two at the time, raises his hand and asks him about the, uh, well, what happens if there's a branch in the slot. And the way he asked it was almost overly deferential because it was such a young, young engineer. And this guy answered, he said, well, the instruction set doesn't allow that. And you're like, at the room, it was like uproar. It, it was like, it was like a murder verdict had just been announced. Like the, I mean, it was just like, it's like everybody's talking at once, like five hands shoot up. Some people start talking. I mean, it was like, it was mayhem. I mean, Adam, do you remember, am I, am I, am I, am I I'm exaggerating maybe a little bit? Bedlam. As, I mean, as far as like Solaris kernel technical discussions go, bedlam. Bedlam. Absolute bedlam. Chaos. <laughs> it is, we need to take a break. We need to like, we, the, uh, cool, cool everyone right. needs to cool off. But I actually remember at the time thinking that it was not, that he was so arrogant in telling this young engineer that this thing that was very much a thing, a DCTI couple, did not exist. Which is like, man, you're at Sun. Like, this is a, like, just like read the room a little bit. And I remember thinking, like, I don't think this guy should work here. Just the way he treated that, that question was really, really bad. Um, but yeah, so DCTI couples very much exist, uh, exist, and we definitely were looking for a way to use instruction picking. Which, That's right. So on, on, on the back of like those lunchtime discussions, uh, uh, discussions and, um, and then us both wanting to go, uh, you know, grovel through these register windows to pluck out particular instruction values, or pardon me, register values, uh, independently, we, we both discovered this, or invented or, or wrote this mechanism to rotate through the register windows by hand and then use instruction picking to pluck out the specific register that we needed. Because uh, after trapping into the kernel and executing in a virtual machine, we decided it would be much too expensive to flush the windows to the stack. And like Mozart and Salieri, and I'm not going to say who's who in this, in, in, the, <laughs> the, we, we, we had both developed this in parallel. And each of, each of us were like, we're very proud of ourselves. And then we compared notes and each was convinced that the other had cribbed their work. That's right. I mean, I mean, just throwing our shoulders out, pat, patting ourselves. On the back. Right. We were so proud of ourselves. And we had to both depend on independently. And it was both kind of sad, basically. And you, the architecture, you, yeah. the ice is dead. You both invented the calculus? That's exactly right. Yes. That's, that's I, right. Yes. Right. Yes. Leibniz and Newton is a much better analogy because that way that, neither right. of us have to wear so here. I, I, I went back to the code uh, and yours is slightly better documented than but your yours like gi gives a nod to the fact that there's something tricky going on and like there's a one-line comment uh explaining this very subtle mechanism and mine is just like well obviously these like you know uh you know 75 instructions including right. like a pile of unreachable instructions and a, a jump that has a branch in its delay slot 
uh, should be obvious to the uh, to the uninitiated. Well, you're very kind, but uh, you're, I think we also agreed that, and perhaps this is just an elaborate setup to get me to confess this, because I will I will confess this on the record that yours was first. So the oh. that, it, I, okay. only fifteen years when later, I, twenty years I later. The, when I went when I went to the Twitter Spaces team and I told them <laughs> right. that they needed to build this product, <laughs> right? Because I had a, that, that's all of this is the, the the very the very long game. Josh, you're either being arrested or you're in the street. I'm not sure. What's oh, I'm terribly sorry. Yeah, no worries. The, the, these uh, the the register window police are are coming after Cluelo. Yeah. Um, right. You sure it's just in the register spill clean? Oh thing? God, boo! So uh, an annulled hey, yes. an annulled branch then did it just stall for the delay slot? No. So in an annulled branch, um, takes the slot. And but so normally the uh, the slot would be executed regardless of whether the branch was taken or not. Right, but in the presumably that was some sort of artifact of the pipeline. Right? Oh, absolutely, an artifact of the pipeline. Yeah. So no in, the, in the annulled case, was that just twice as expensive? Like did it just twiddle for for the slot? That is a good question about that. Tom, do you have any idea that I do not know the history of annulled? I mean, that whole mechanism. The delay slot is wonky. The uh, the fact that like yeah. they can be annulled is a real confession that like okay, this is what it's a like, disaster. This, this is, is actually <laughs> it's actually impossible to program. <laughs> actually, this is a mess. Sorry, or you just end up with like knobs in the slot, right? Which is right. like that was like the classic like GCC unoptimized code was knobs in the slot. Yeah, I I I think this annulment stuff is pretty newfangled. I don't, I don't remember <laughs> any of that. That's the the comma a thing, I, right? On the in the assembly yeah. syntax or whatever. That's right. That's right. Yes. Okay. And then it had the the sense of being annulled. First, like, what does it even mean? Like, this is like our Catholic Union never existed between the <laughs> the, the source and target instruction. I mean, I, I think it's a super weird word to use. And then it means the opposite in the branch always case. That, that's right. That 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 they that it inverts the meaning in the case where it's most common. So you have the most familiar. <laughs> so B A comma A does never executes what's in the slot. Yep. I think I'm getting that right. I mean, I'll have to fact check. I've obviously not written I, in an I, old I, slot I, in a long, I, old branch in a long time. I just opened up my, my trusty Spark architecture manual, which on the page uh, where it describes unknown branches has a, like a flight coupon <laughs> for like a United flight to Chicago <laughs> from like t- 2002. So you knew it was an important case. This time capsule just fell out of my Spark. My, my Spark annual. Oh, All right, so, so one oh, of the things to, to, to praise Spark about, one of the things that I, so in my first job doing kernel development on x86, and I had this big, oh, this is back in the day when you get all of Pentium described in a single thick manual. And this thing is like almost phone book thickness. I love that manual. I still have it. But it was all we printed out. And I, like there were so many times that summer I was in the guts of x86 and the task state segment and all this other segmented memory and all this other bullshit. And I remember looking up at like the super thin volume that is that was Spark V8 at the time, being like, how did they get the, the higher instruction set described in so few words? And it's like it could have been even fewer words because of the annulled branch nonsense and all that other stuff. It could have been even tighter. <laughs> Uh, but it, so I, I definitely like lionized Spark for for its elegance for sure. Before I had to implement it in this garbage, I got to say I, I I don't know if this is uh, if this is a minority opinion, but the alternate address space, I love that. Uh, I I always found very elegant. I mean, and this is this is such an anachronism, but you know, in the early when we were kind of hyping up the the Solaris port to x86 and then AMD 64, 
and sort of <laughs> deciding what fraction of the address space would belong to the kernel versus the user, it felt like it felt disgusting to me. And I know that this is like this is ridiculous that that I could look down from my Spark Ivory Tower on on like a on a split address space, but the fact that you had the full whether it was 32 bits or 64 bits with a, with an asterisk on that uh, from the, and then, and then be able to address, like have the full address space for user land as well. Like oh, that seemed really cool. It is very cool. So the address space identifiers allowed you to do a load from a different address space. That was your secondary address space. So for those of you who've done kernel implementation, you can imagine that you, all you do is annotate a load when you want to load from user land. It's not, and then you're in a totally disjoint address space. It, there's something. Sorry, I'm good. Go ahead, keep going. Well, no, 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 no. You're bringing up ASIs, and you're missing one of the cool parts about ASIs and Spark, starting with V9 and I, later. I, but no, sorry, I, I didn't mean to it interrupt. Not at all. Because I actually I know exactly what you're going to say, so you should say it. I agree with it. I think I know what you're going to say. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Starting in V9, somebody in Spark Design Land had the bright idea because. Oh my God, we have PCI. We have all these other Intelli related things. And oh shit, they're all little Endian. Oh, we also have algorithms that have implicit little Endian bias. I'm looking at you, MD5. Um, so you could use an alternate space identifier that would go to the little Endian space of the same address space. And boom, auto swap. It was very, right it was very nice in hardware. It would, the, the ASIs were really very elegant. And, the, you, and Adam, you realize that was very prophetic <laughs> because we, the, we ultimately we needed to implement kernel page table isolation on x86. That's Meltdown, right? The, yeah, the, the, the fact that they yeah, shared the yeah. same address space was actually uh, hugely problematic. So no, ASIs were really nice. They, they were really nice. Yeah. I, Tom, I've got a question for you on, because I saw you were mentioning this, the software, yeah. the software-filled TLB, did that date back to the earliest Spark? Oh, yeah. Yeah. There was no room for any extra TLB logic. So you got a trap and you had to figure it all out. Interesting. Um, so that was just an area concern <clears throat> primarily in terms of a what concern? in terms of chip area, in terms of just like the, they should not have the room to cram right, hardware page right. table walk into it. Right. Um, and then uh, the other really annoying feature not not so much the processor, but the whole earliest Sun 4 architecture was the physically tagged caches and uh, TLBs. And there, there's basically no no chance of any uh, coherency between I.O. and processor or even or even fancy processor coherency. Oh, interesting. So th this is the virtually indexed physically tagged caches? Yeah, something like I, I forget the details, but it was just... Flush, flush, flush every time you wanted to do I.O. Oh, interesting. Well, certainly the the, um, the virtually index physically tagged cache on UltraSpark one and two, you could have what was you could have the same uh, the same line be in different colors of the cache, and you have what's called a vac conflict, and that was a very very bad state to get in. I don't know if you ever had to deal with any of that shit, but it was very bad. Um, yeah. Yeah, I remember those performance pathologies being like inscrutable. And you know, I always thought that MIPS did a really nice job on this. If MIPS, because I'm like, why am I the software? Like, can't someone help me detect this? MIPS gives you a uh, would give you MIPS. We talk about rest in peace. Would give you a trap on a back conflict, which I always thought was really nice. Huh. Um, and then you could clean up one half of it. All right, so the, so the software filled TLB went back to the earliest days because I actually use that quite a bit. 
we would um, what I, I developed something. So in in Spark, so you, you were there for the early days of Spark, Tom. You, you, Adam and I were there for more like the later days of Spark, and before it got like yeah. good again, I feel like there was like that the like the last like you know the kind of the Niagara era where it was like and T two where it was arguably good again. Adam and I were just there for the worst of the days. I feel, and <laughs> we had a so there was a a a, a variant. Ultra Spark Three, very cruelly named Cheetah, because it was not. It, 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 My God. it was, it was not fast. <laughs> it was not fast. It was slow. It was late, and it had a lot of problems. It was wrong. Um, this is the, part of the problem with microprocessors is these things tend to come in clumps. Like a microprocessor that's late <laughs> is almost, by definition, especially in that era, slow, and then it's almost certainly late because it's like a mess, big pipeline, and in particular their TLB. So Ultraspark 1 and 2 had a 64-entry fully-set associative TLB and for all page sizes. And we would lock down, like, I don't know, three or four pages of that. Um, they, uh, in, uh, we had done a bunch of work in the operating system for large pages, especially for database workloads. And in, in Ultraspark 3, they decided that, well, no one's using large pages. We actually were definitely using large pages. So we are going to have two TLBs, a large page TLB and a small page TLB. And the 8K TLB for 8K pages is going to be 512 entries. It's like, okay, that's good. Two-way set associative. And you're like, ooh, two, really? Can I have more ways, please? (laughs) Because two-way set associativity is like, that is... And we definitely did have problems where the iCache was two-way set. And so if you were going like jump, 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 and those three mapped the same two-way set, you would the third jump would kick out the first one. And so you go return. And so you'd have this benchmark. You're like, you know, it's really weird. Like I compile this thing over and over and over again. And like every 80th time when I compile it and run it, it's 40x slower. <laughs> and you're like, yeah, yeah. shit. But then the the uh, the large page TLB they took from sixty four entries down to sixteen entries, and then we had to lock, for other reasons of other things being broken, we had to lock like five of those entries down. So you end up with like you end up going to this like super tiny TLB. You end up basically it was a huge step backwards in so many different ways. It was it was not it was bad. They had fewer register windows too in Cheetah. Oh, right. So you'd spill yes, more you'd, often. That's right. You'd spill yeah. more often. Did you, Adam, were you, did, you, did you end up locked in any of those meetings? Was I the only one? Did I, did I die for the team? I on think that it one? was just you. I think I, I, think I, I was next. You, you pulled me in on the, on the next one, the Panther meetings, right? The Panther meetings, yes. And that was in 2000, I want to say in 2004, maybe. Would that make sense? But, but you were going to talk about uh, Atrace, I think. I was going to talk about Atrace. Yeah. The, so in the, so in particular, they had built Cheetah, a microprocessor built, this is like in 2003, they had built it on traces from uh, Sun4M running Sybase. That's how they had kind of concluded that no one uses large pages. So they were running software that was from 1994 at that point. And you're like, that was a decade ago. Like, we, that was not a forward-looking decision. That was not good. Well, hey, they, they had traces. They did, yeah. I guess that's why. There you go, Tom. Glasses half full, but yeah, had traces. Right, yeah, right. that's right. <laughs> All the traces show the wrong things, but uh, I got to tell you, in in uh, in '94 is when I left Sun, and uh, the Spark roadmap contributed to my decision in a big way. 
Oh, really? God, that is like yeah. so. I show up. I, you know, it's like, did you leave over Viking? Uh, no. It was it's kind of the whole the whole program. I, I went to this review, and there were like six different chips in development, and they were all stepping on each other, and none of them were meeting anywhere near a competitive goal for clock speed. And it was it was very depressing. Huh. In, in hindsight, maybe I maybe some of what happened to me was noble in advance, but apparently was. <laughs> the, I thought what was, was so great about it, and what ultimately drew me, honestly, to Sun was not just that, the fact that it was like really investing in Unix, but these SMP machines were great, right? They're making big SMP machines, bigger than anybody yeah. else, which is great. So that was the exciting bit, but the actual, like the microprocessors themselves were clearly... Not so, not so great. The um, but so Dan mentioned Viking. So Tom, were you there for how much the Viking fracas were you there for? Were you does the does the Viking I, does the Viking iCash bug ring a bell? Nope, <sighs> I was pretty far pretty far away from that stuff. So the Viking iCash was not grounded mm. out properly, um, and. For for people in the audience who don't know what Viking is, we use code names and we forget that people weren't Sun employees then. The Viking was the Super Spark chip that featured prominently in the Spark Station 10, the Spark Station 20, and the Spark Station 5. Right. And so it had an improperly grounded out iCache. And um, as a result, you had, as I was describing this to one of our colleagues at Oxide, he was like, wait a minute, you'd have to like... DC balance the iCache? Like, yes, you'd have to DC balance the iCache. And if you had too many zeros, they would start flipping to ones. And uh, Bonwick figured this out when, uh, amusingly, Tom just dropped. I imagine Tom is now filing a bug internally for that. But <laughs> for, <laughs> uh, Twitter employee dropped by spaces. Um, the um, uh, Bonwick discovered this when he had a branch that was uh, where the displacement sent him to a, an address that had a lot of zeros in it, and it, they started flipping. But very, uh-huh. very bad. No, Viking was bad, and lives on in the debugger where we would still uh, try to flip one bit of a bad address to determine if it could have corresponded to actual data corruption. And, and, you know, I, I, I stumbled onto that Viking story through the MDBD command where I said, why on earth would you want to take an address and try flipping all the bits in it to see if it comes out as something meaningful. And you're like, well, sit down and let me tell you. That's right. Let me tell you a story about biking. And so did you, did you like, I mean, that flip one, uh, did you like discover bugs with that back in the day? Like, did you, you know, plug that into some goofball address and discover like that, that, that the cache had, had done you? Damage? I did, but only because of software. So in other words, it was something that had incorrectly masked an address, not because of hardware. I don't mm. think. Um, but uh, and I should just say that, like um, anybody who, it, it, like you got Spark stories, had just hop in here, raise your hand, request. We'll, it will all requests granted. See, <laughs> definitely the the subtitle of any of our spaces. Um, the um, so that was so Viking was very bad, and I mean Tom quit as a result, I guess. Uh, Lion, the um, UltraSpark arguably saved the company. That's when I showed up, um, or not arguably, indisputably saved the company. And yeah. um, there, oh, there's Tom. <clears throat> Tom, did you drop off or his Twitter spaces? I, d- I did. Okay. I, I don't know if that was a Comcast moment or what. Okay. But... All right. Well, we, we were joking that, that you were off like pinging the Twitter spaces team. Um, I, I feel, you know, I just. <laughs> yeah. um, so the, so Tom, and um, 
amazingly, the company kept stayed afloat through what was a very, very rocky period at Sun4M. Sun4U, UltraSpark, definitely worked or seemed to and was great at 167 megahertz and at 330 or whatever. But I think it's when we got to about 400 that we started seeing eCash pair years. So if you were a Sun, Sun customer during this era, all I can say is that I personally am sorry. Um, every Sun employee is sorry. We're really sorry. We saw. So the it would the whole thing was a big wake up call. So the eCash parity era, and I recently saw read a memoir, a very bad memoir written by a Sun exec at the time, who uh, I was like, I'm obviously skipping ahead to the chapter on the eCash parity era, and he totally misdescribed the eCash parity era. He's like, and we discovered that it was due to high energy particle strikes. It's like. No, it wasn't. It was not due to high energy. It was due to everything but high energy particle strikes. So the eCash parity error, if you suffer from an eCash parity error, the two most common, there were some manufacturing defects that were the most common. And there was a design defect that was also a common cause of it. One of the manufacturing defects, Tom, I don't know if you've heard of this, that it, there was a, uh, we had radioactive boron had um, an impurity in our SRAM manufacturing process. Yeah, it got into the packaging, right? That, it got into the packaging. So you had radioactive boron, which is an alpha emitter, but it's sitting in the actual SRAM cell. The particles and are coming from inside the house? The particles are coming right. from inside the house. And that and was there ECC on that SRAM, Brian? There is there that it, there was parity, not ECC. Parity. Oh, I see. Because okay. ECC takes another clock to compute. That's right. And so so you would get so but Adam, you love this that the, you get a parity error, right? So we have a parity error. So what do we do now? And apparently the, the, the Spark approach to errors was really like, I just hope they don't happen. <laughs> and in particular, you would take a trap, but you would not be in an architecturally coherent state when you took a trap. So it's like, as it turns out, like there's actually nothing you can do with this trap. Like you are, you've got no way of knowing what the architectural state should have been. So you basically have to die. But the problem was that, the, and this is something that it took a long time to figure out. People didn't really internalize this. Who gets the trap on an eCash parity error? Well, who gets the trap is whoever observed the eCash parity error. Well, the problem is it was very rarely, like never, the CPU with the bad cache. What would happen is that line would be snooped by another CPU. That CPU that snooped it would be like, wait a minute, this is like bad, and it would die. And because we didn't understand, we collectively, we sun, we humanity, didn't understand what was happening, we would say, oh, that CPU is broken. Replace that CPU. It's like, no, no, you're, you're, you're actually like replacing the messenger. That's actually the only <laughs> CPU you can say with confidence that you should replace. So people be like, okay, I replaced CPU 13. Okay, now CPU 4 died. Okay, replace CPU 4. Now CPU 5 died. And you would get to the point when we had customers who were like, I have replaced every single CPU in here except for CPU 8. CPU 8 seems to be great. You're like, no, no. CPU 8 is the murderer. CPU 8 is the one. It's murdering all these CPUs. It's, it's, it's the diagram of the airplane with the bullet holes. It is the diagram of the airplane with the bullet holes. And we as a company, and I, just, I really wanted like Steve Chasson or whatever to write a book about this because there's so much to learn by how Sun mishandled this in so many different ways, like earnest ways, not like being malicious. We just did not understand what was going on. And in particular, like there's a kind of a desire when you're on the front lines of a problem like this to give the customer like something to do. And you're not necessarily trying to deflect blame, but that's what it comes across as. And we had a customer in Europe 
who uh, we said we, it was, the, oh, this is due to dust. It's like, this is dust. He's like, well, yeah, you know, I think, got, I think there's dust in the data center. And the customer's like, all right, well, okay, I guess we'll accelerate this big HVAC project we got. We'll accelerate that. So they, did, they put, you know, millions of dollars into uh, solving this HVAC problem. And they still have all these e-cash barriers. And then Sun says, well, we think it's due to the proximity to the tube. This is in London. They're a quarter of a mile away from the tube. <laughs> and the customer's like, okay, we've got a map. And, like, do you realize, like, there is no spot in London that's not a quarter of a mile away from the tube. So we don't think it's this. But the, um, the customer ended up building a new data center. And as it turns out, there were lots of things that could contribute to the cash parity error. One was the manufacturing defects that were not due to the radioactive boron, but were due to just really grievous manufacturing problems. In particular, the customer is so upset that Sun has them, like, we'll give you a factory tour. The customer's like, I would love that. They go to a factory tour, which is a huge mistake because Sun did not have the discipline to really make these things well. And the customer walks in, and this is a customer that has been like, they're moving their data center further away from a tube and they're like cleaning up dust and they walk in and it's just, this incredibly dusty manufacturing floor because they're they're deboxing these machines in the same room that they're doing the burn-in. So there's cardboard everywhere. There's dust everywhere. And the customer ran their finger along one of the horizontal surfaces and looked back at the finger, which of course is black, and held up the finger to the exec. He said, just just remind me why I built the new data center. And everyone's like, wow, tough moment. Uh, <laughs> so it was, it was, it was, it was an educational moment. And I was, it, it, it was one of those moments that was like, man, when you're going to have a customer do something, you always have to remember there's a human being on the other end of that. And you like, you cannot have them chasing your theories. Like you really need to be, to be transparent with them and honest with them. And it was, we were not as a company, honestly. But I, I think eCash, Brian, it, that it, it caused a, a real reckoning, certainly in the Slayer's kernel group, in terms of how to, how to build software more reliably, how to build software defensively against these kind of hardwares, and how to like collaborate with some of the folks on the hardware. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the, so the fault management architecture at Sun uh, that we still have in Illumos, that fault management architecture came out of the eCash parity error. Um, and in particular, it came out of the observation that, again, there were many problems that, that were causing us. A bunch of the manufacturing kind of defects you could predict in advance by looking at the rate of correctables over time. And if the rate of correctables would rise, you actually had some indicator that there were components that were beginning to fail and that you should take, like, you, you could take action. You could actually, like, turn off the CPU. Um, so, yeah, that, it, was, it was a huge wake-up call because we had screwed up so much. There's actually uh, just another fine, one other final story on the embarrassment of the cash parity error. The, uh, and, and, and I'm going to the Micron story. So Micron was late to Sun for a, a, a DRAM shipment. And it was the point like we needed to ship the system to make the quarter. And McNeely is on the phone. And this one, this story I actually know from, McNeely actually told us the story. So this one I, I've got on, on at least quasi-good authority, I guess. Uh, the uh, McNeely calls up the Micron CEO. He's like, where's my DRAM? Like, we need to make our quarter. Micron CEO says, you know, actually, it's funny. Um, I was just going to call you because I actually have your DRAM. It's sitting on a private jet here in Boise to, to send you. But like, it's very important to get this to you. 
that jet can't take off because our ERP system has something that you might recognize called an eCash parity error. Oh, man. Wow. <laughs> yeah, that was another one of those. That's why you will never see me complaining about systems that are down as we go. As it's like if, if someone's reservation system is down, like, I'll be patient. I'll just hope it's please don't be me. Please don't be me. Um, anyway, yeah, it was bad, Adam. It was, it was, yeah. it was bad. And we, we learned a lot, I would, I would like to believe, about making more reliable systems. And just like you can't have the strategy of hoping something doesn't happen. Yeah, or, or I mean, to, to your point of your story, like some of the, um, you know, when these aberrant conditions occurred, the sort of thought of like, oh, we'll, we'll generate it, we'll, we'll kick it down the road and let it be somebody else's problem. But thinking through that full system to know like that you have enough coherent architectural state to do something with that interruption. That's right. That's right. You can't just like, hey, we'll just kick it upstairs. And I don't know, software, software, question mark, question mark. Right. <laughs> Nate, I saw you unmute and you get to get in here. Oh, yeah. At first, I was just going to say that I, I imagine the entire audience of listeners gasping in one, at, at once at the punchline of that one. Yeah. Um, but the, the I also wanted to I, it, your story about the them blaming it on like cosmic rays triggered something for me. I haven't thought of in like 20 years. The first place that I worked for was a recent spinoff of Hewlett Packard. It was actually the first one ever. And it was in a facility where. Um, they had had some semiconductor uh, um, operations going, whether it was, um, I think it was just assembly at that point, but they had some kind of like mysterious bug like that, that went on for months and months and months. And then they had some um, expensive consultant come in and, you know, looked around and looked into all these things and said, cosmic rays, it's cosmic rays. And so they, they literally lined the, uh, the roof of these buildings with like lead or tantalum or something. And, and it didn't change the error rate at all. <laughs> and that's what it made me think of. Oh, interesting. So that, that must have been like an in vogue, uh, you know, thing to go to if you were a consultant and you, uh, you couldn't find the answer. Well, I mean, obviously cosmic rays do exist. And I, th I know I saw Rick Alther join. I know there's, there are definitely stories of where uh, the hyperscalers, AWS, Google, and so on, can see like they can see sunspots by seeing higher <clears throat> instances of, of, of errors. So, like they definitely do exist. But it is very hard to verify that that is the – ultimately, it's kind of like, you know, I found a bug in the compiler or I found a bug in the operating system. It's like maybe, but maybe it's a bug in your program. <laughs> exactly, maybe. Yeah. So but, you, but then, you need a really statistically significant number of data points to, uh, to convince me that that's, <laughs> you know, coming the, from the other direction. I, I think the earliest hints, though, were the, the failures. In, at Los Alamos and at NCAR, which are both very high altitude. Well, that's it, Tom. And I think right. that the, the, with the eCache parity error, the reason that the, in this kind of this myth got hold, like, oh, it's cosmic rays. And there, the, the physicists that were looking into this is like, no, it's not higher in Denver and it's not higher in Los Alamos. Because if you're not, yeah. see, if it's not higher at altitude, like, go fish. You've got something else. Um, and you, again, you can't have cosmic rays, but it's just, it's not likely by any means. Right. Brad, is it kosher to talk about who the manufacturer was? Oh, definitely. Or... I feel like, yeah. Oh, yeah, go for it. I mean, you, you told me. <laughs> that's, oh, what, I, oh, yeah, you're getting my fingerprints on the revolver? Yeah, so, all right, well, you should know that also that the <laughs> that we were being just absolutely, uh, just demolished in the marketplace, justifiably so, for this really grievous error that we were then mishandling. And, of course, like, who are we competing with? Well, we're competing with, like, HP Superdome, and we're competing with, with IBM Power. And 
I mean, IBM is just rightfully just going to town on us. I mean, I think the IBM sales reps must have got, I think IBM sales reps got paged on an eCash parity error before the, before the Sunday. <laughs> it's like they, you know, they managed to show up. And so IBM is just absolutely feeding on this. Um, and of course, who is the, 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 our SRAM manufacturer, of course, is IBM Microelectronics. And we had, the contract was written in such a way that what they had actually done, what they had delivered was not in violation of the contract. So uh, write your contracts carefully um, because you want to be sure that on, on something. And honestly, like the, the radioactive boron was obviously extremely bad, not to dismiss it. But it was, man, there was so much else that was wrong about it. If that had been the only problem, it would have been, uh, it would have been much simpler. But it, there are a lot of problems. The, uh, so um, I know that um, I saw Dan Cross join. Dan, I know you wanted to talk like Spark I would say knockoffs, but like TurboSpark and all the other. Do you want to talk about Fujitsu TurboSpark? Do it. Talk about TurboSpark. I didn't really have much. So I honestly had very little exposure to the Fujitsu chips other than there was this alternate universe timeline in which people would take our operating system then proprietary and get it working on gear that we never saw and then would occasionally ask us, highly technical, very well-informed questions about very arcane parts of, of the system. Um, so I did, honestly had very little exposure to, to TurboSpark or to also to HAL, right? And the ROS. I had I a set remember. of ROS HyperSparks at some point. They were incredibly did. hot. <laughs> they ran so hot. It felt like the Spark Station was going to catch fire. Did you have... How did you... Did we only let... Australia have Ross microprocessors or something, Josh? What, how did you end up with this? Uh, I don't know. They were in a cupboard at the university. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> the, the best things come out of the cupboard. Um, so, yeah, I don't, Dan, I don't know. Do you, do you have more stories with, with, with TurboSpark? Did you have to deal with it at all? Not really. I, I have a TurboSpark Spark Station 5 down in my basement that I haven't powered up in, like, probably 15 years, and it probably needs to be recapped and all of that good stuff. But... I'm just curious if there were any stories around that. I mean, that one was notable to me because it came out around the time of the Ultra One, and it was 170 megahertz part, but presumably Sun 4M microarchitecture, and you know, produced by Sun as a Spark Station. And I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. And I just assumed that was a Sun part, but then I just looked it up, and it was. Fujitsu. It was a Fujitsu part, yeah. 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 And Fujitsu and Sun and TI and uh, there was a very, there was some very weird because Sun was fabulous, um, so there were very uh, relationships that I would didn't have that much insight into, honestly. But yes, they were very fast um, SS fives. I can tell you from the inside of Sun, I got a choice between one of those coming in and a 143 megahertz Sun for you. Um, and there was no question that I wanted the 143 megahertz sun for you. It was going to be the, the, the box I was much more interested in. Um, a little dual processor that was at an electron um, that used to uh, watchdog if the table ever got pounded um, because it was a... And so whenever I was upset, I would pound the table because I was frustrated that I at myself about something and then the, watch, the machine would watchdog, which felt very appropriate. But I was like getting punished for losing my temper at the machine. The, the Ross Sun 4M parts were people who had Spark 10s and hated them would buy Ross parts and like, oh, okay, now it doesn't suck. Well, or apparently it heats your cabinet in, in, in Josh's uh, it, case. It, 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 
Yeah, it, they they were they were. I, I I think there was like one. My first job out of grad school, there was a lot of Sun 4M lying around, and one of the tens was that, and it was kept in a cooler place, like a machine room. <laughs> so then we we had so after, um, it, and I yeah, love it. We've got any stories on on those. Um, I did want to like talk about Adam when you and I were dealing with Panther, what became Ultraspark Four. And we would get on these con calls, and they were all voiced at the time, obviously, the Polycom. And there was like, and I guess like something's just never changed. I feel like we're still in this mode. There, I, I remember Adam and I were on a call where there was like a tapping sound. And they, they spent 15 minutes trying to debug where the tapping sound was coming from. And we're like, we are screwed. Like, we can't run. We literally cannot run a conference call like we are. This is not good. I don't know, Adam, what your thoughts were at the time. I, I mean, I was, it was sort of early in my career at Sun and just seeing how that particular sausage was made very, very slowly uh, by folks who, as you say, couldn't run a conference call. It was discouraging. Although, uh, you know, not, not necessarily in our defense, for every subsequent conference call that you and I were on, we would spend the first five minutes tapping our fingers on the Polycom to, to recreate yeah, I, I think right. We were, we were very tempted. They, they had created a perverse incentive where we actually wanted to create a tapping sound just to watch them debug it. It was so entertaining. I mean, it was really terrible. I mean, what, what, was, what was wrong with us? What a, what a bunch of brats we were. Exactly. exactly. Um, but Panther, I remember thinking like, wow, this chip is going to be amazing when we stick it in a time machine and send it back to 2001 when it would have been competitive. I mean, it would have been competitive in 2001. It would have been amazing in 2001. But I, that, That's how all those processors were. And was it was it Eagle that went into Millennium, or do I have that backwards? It was Millennium that went into Eagle. Um, Thank you. Yeah. I believe. And Millennium, yeah, Millennium was a canceled project, UltraSpark 5. It did not go well. I don't know. But it, 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 it was canceled in, like, I mean, by, by the Oracle overlords, like, much belatedly. Was that? No, that was Rock. That was oh, rock. Rock, right, right. Rock. rock. Which do you remember what rock stood for, Dan? Uh, no, they no, no, no. Hey, I don't. Okay, who's, so who's IBM for? had their IBM Regatta, and that was a Regatta on a chip, ROC. That was rock. Uh, I, not exactly, exactly, Adam. That's ex- that's exactly the right reaction. Kind of like a fatigued exhale. Like that's what we're doing right now. <laughs> I mean, I know that it didn't literally occur, but it felt like we never actually shipped a new Spark CPU while I was at Sun. Although until we got like the the Niagara and the the T series, yes, and those were great. I mean, or, or yeah, that, that was that, very well. That would have been really great if they hadn't had a, just a single FPU. The first one. That's right. They, it was so odd. So it was, it was this system. It was this hugely multi-threaded system at the time. Do you remember how how many threads or cores was that? I want to say like. 60, 1632. Yeah, 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 something like that. I was going to say 32 or 64. The small um, ones had a less than that. They were agonizingly slow. They, yeah, I think the very first one was only eight threads. The T, right. The, if you bought a T1000 with the small CPU, it was like eight threads or something or 16 threads. Yeah, and and, I think some and of them each of those threads, off. each of those threads would run about as fast, like observably fast as, I don't know, like. UltraSpark 3i, maybe, best at best. They were so really was... slow. 
I should, it should also be said, Josh, that you're someone who is like got a pretty high tolerance for pain from a performance perspective. I, mean, I know, not, and I, I tried to get people to use these things, and as I, and honestly, the thing that really made it embarrassing was like because it was a very wide CPU, nothing could go faster than the you know 800 megahertz or whatever useful performance you could get out of it. Interactive SSH was slow, like it just felt mm. laggy. Yeah, that's bad. Um, speaking of, well, T1 was a throwback to the early Sparks hmm. because it had no integer multiply. Oh, interesting. I just remember they had the a single FPU for all those threads and cores. And the way, and I get that, like, there's this idea, I, I, there should be a good name for it. Like a, I'm sure there's a single word for this in German, where you have a, the, you see something that you kind of assert is common, or, um, and you add it, or you see you assert that something is uncommon, so you eliminate it. So you're like, floating point operations happen, like don't happen. So we are going to, uh, or they're very, they're very rare. It's like, well, they're, they are like maybe, but like they definitely do happen. Like if you run, you know, there are many integer programs that do actually enough floating point to be painful if you're going to make it a very painful operation. With like your large pages, uh, you know, uh, you know, nobody's using these huge pages. Same kind of like insight where they're drawing the wrong inferences, and I remember being very excited about T1, seeing that it would, uh, like it, it, they quoted all these pretty nifty, uh, you know, performance benchmarks when it came to, like, uh, you know, like with these ostensible web processes, which were very hot at the time, and then with the caveat, oh, as long as you're not using FPU, and to your point, Brian. Everything it turned out was using a little bit of FPU, and when everyone was using a little bit of FPU, everything just backed up and became very slow and very single thread. That's right, Laura. You got? Did, do you have one of these stories as well? Do you have a, a similar kind of story? I saw Laura unmuting herself, but maybe no, maybe not. I I I, I have a similar story to that. Oh, we I, ran a you, whole bunch of stuff on on the Niagara chips, and honestly, after about a year of beating on it, the only thing we were able to ever able to get to run fast was benchmarks. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's great. Well, but, hey, at least those benchmarks ran. So what are you complaining about? Those benchmarks are great. Those benchmarks, of course, approximate your real-world workloads. Oh. It's like the Jedi Jedi mind trick for, for, for performance. I think, I, I think they did a great job marketing that, though, with the throughput-oriented computing. It's like when you're too embarrassed about latency. <laughs> hey, do you remember balanced computing, Tom? Didn't the, I, if I recall correctly, the son would talk about balanced computing at a time when the when everything sucked. It's like, no, no, oh, no, no, no. Right. You, you wouldn't want to have one of those fast alpha CPUs. Like, you, I mean. You, no, the feng shui, <laughs> the feng shui well, is wrong. Terrible. I, I, I think IBM mainframes were the first with the balanced. <laughs> the balanced, story. there you go. There you go, son, we, yeah. It sucks, but there's a lot of it. That's, that's right. Well, I, I mean, it was obviously a great idea. I, it was just, it was early, honestly. And it was early, and like the whole company desperately needed it to succeed, which probably meant putting too much, investing too much in it from an emotional perspective, not a not necessarily. And Theo, did you ever get to the bottom of why, why was it, uh, did it perform poorly for you? I mean, at the end of the day, everything uses FPA. Right. Is, is what yeah. the problem was, but if you could, if you could manifest a highly concurrent workload that relied only on uh, integer arithmetic, then it then it was okay. So it worked um, worked okay. It's like a web cache, right? Which was 
basically made it the most expensive webcast you could deploy. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. And that and it turns out that was the marketing material. And I remember that quote from you being very effective. No, that's right. The most expensive webcast you could buy raves the Airsoft cycle. The, I definitely remember, and I know that we, Adam, whenever we talk about the cost of the systems, I just remember us learning the cost of a V880. Eight CPU V880 was retailed for like 120K or something like this. And yeah. do you remember us talking about this? I remember, is, it, is this yeah, as vivid for you as it is for me? Indelible. I remember it being in Building 17. And, and, and I think it might have been when I was an intern or had just joined or something like that. I mean, really, I mean, it was like 2000, 2001. Something and like you're that. just like, who would pay that for a computer? Does that make any sense? Like, why would I just, like, why why would I just buy eight smaller computers? Or a hundred for that price. We, we deployed probably, I think we had one, one install that had 12 V880s racked side by side by side all running Oracle 8i, and uh, that architecture printed money, so it was well worth it. It never really broke. <laughs> well, there you go. That, is, that's, that answers the question. I remember just being like, I don't know. I guess, yeah. I, mm, I don't know. It's, I, people wanted, I guess. And then after everything like busted out, I'm like, listen to the babes, the children. They were telling us. Adam was telling us. The intern knew. The intern knew this was ridiculous. So... I mean, but that, that speaks to, a, like, I feel like we were holding on to Spark, both both as the full company and in the kernel group. For just, we, we just wanted it to go. Like, we wanted it to be the thing. Uh, and then when we when we made the Solaris port to, to Hammer, to, to AMD64, it was just so clear, uh, the, the performance gap. It was bad. When, when I moved into the... So... In, in, into a group at the uni where we were using Sunrays for desktops, there were a couple of ultra, like there were the two forties, I think, that were in there. Uh, and it's like people are like, ah, thin clients kind of suck. This is not a good experience, and so we replaced them. Just I can't even remember why, but with like an ancient compact ProLiant from before the Hewlett Packard acquisition that had like a Pentium three in it, and it felt maybe three times as fast interactively and it was definitely it's like why we should stop buying these things okay so now we've come to the part the moment in the twitter space where brian gets kicked out we are hostless and brian can listen to all of us speaking but can't actually speak himself so uh we're gonna pause for a second brian i don't know if All right, Adam, you there? Frank, Frank can I can you hear me? you. Yes, yes, and I'm again. I'm I, I'm approving all comers. So if you've got something to say, I want to talk about Spark. Definitely, uh, just just request to speak. Um, and um, are you going to kick off the recording again, Adam? Uh oh. <laughs> no more Adam. Oh, Twitter Spaces, we love you so much. Can you please work more reliably? Nate, do you do a lot of Twitter Spaces? Is this happening in a bunch of Twitter Spaces or just us? This is my own bad luck. I just, I, I love Twitter Spaces and I want it to work. Adam, you there? Actually, can anyone hear me? 
I, 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 Jesus I Christ, you okay? Give me. A, I'm just like, wait a minute. Have I just? Am I? Are we dead again? Uh, yeah, Brian, I, I can hear you now, and, and I seem to be in. Okay, good. Yeah, that is like, I, I come on, Twitter Spaces. So, so is there a, is there an hour limit or something? Uh, yeah. It, so supposedly this is, and I, I saw um, Antronic was saying that this was um, had ha- happened in a space that he was in, and he thought it was there was a garbage collection issue that we we're. I mean, I, of course, ironically, um, I mean th- this space should die because of an eCash parody error somewhere. So that yeah, I was going to say my my app <laughs> threw an e- eCash parody. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. <laughs> um, all right. So I know uh, some folks have been waiting to uh, the. Um, uh, Enron advocate has been waiting to get in here, so I want to make sure that you got a chance to speak. Yeah, so I had maybe a dumb question as a young person, but like, why Spark? Was this just the days before x86 was dominant, or was there an advantage, or was it just Sun being Sun? Oh, it was not just Sun being Sun. It, yeah, first of all, it could yeah. be all of those things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the yeah. 386 was not really taking off at the time and let's see what instructions we could get that are small and we can make a small chip that clocks really fast so stanford came up with the mips project berkeley came up with the risk project which was a progenitor to spark if i remember correctly tom yeah am I right yeah and, absolutely david david patterson carried it into yeah. sun mm-hmm. yeah and so those were the two those were the two big forces behind reduced instruction set computing at the time eventually ibm took their 801 project from Watson Labs and turned it into power. And the then inter, you're intermediate, at the end of the 80s. Intermediate romp or something. Oh, God. Yeah, don't forget the romp. romp. I had a romp machine in Rochester for one of my summer gigs there. And that thing oh, was slower than the oh, night. Oh, hold on. Don't forget the romp? Are you saying romp? R-O-M-P? Yeah. Oh, yes. yeah. 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 Oh, my God. On a yeah. microprocessor. Oh. It was the, the a 32 yeah. processor. You could either run AIX on it. Or you could run a port of 4.3 VSD that IBM called AOS, the Academic Operating System. <laughs> yeah, we, actually had, we actually had AOS on the ones in Rochester because they were used by the AS400 TCP IP group. Wow. wow. A- AOS was actually pretty reasonable as a port of 4.3. AIX on that thing was... That was something else. That is nuts. Yeah. I know. So yeah, and I, you know, there's a very good if, if listening to um, to answer the question. Um, David Patterson's got a great retrospective. I mean, their their uh, Turing lecture is really good, and they talked about in particular. They talked about the fact that a bunch of grad students at Stanford and Berkeley were able to make a CPU that was faster than the industry. That's how what a big deal. So risk was a very big deal when it happened. Um, so that's that's why Spark. Um, because well, the, other, the, the other great data point, though, in, in roughly that time frame was the Intel 432. Yes. Where they, they completely forgot about oh. performance. And it was this ridiculous architecture. So I know I'm in the right room because I was actually going to bring up the Intel 432 earlier when we were talking about oh, removing God. things that, that they don't think are needed. And they, the 432 architects felt that uh, people, the only constants you really needed were zero and one. And as a result, the only immediate values it had were zero and one. And I, Robert Caldwell, in his, what I still feel is like one of the greatest papers ever written on uh, performance considerations, architectural performance considerations in the Intel 432, whatever it is, I'll, we'll link to it. 
great, great paper. But he taught, he says that, that this assumption is quote, almost certainly in error. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, cause Tom, you were, you guys were watching the 432 from Sun's perspective. You must have been like, what are you guys doing over there? Yeah, it, it was kind of a little bit before Sun, but because uh, I, I know because my wife came to work at Sun from, from that group in early 83. So it was already a laughing stock by that time. Tom, I have so many follow-up questions. Your wife came <laughs> from the 432 group? What, yeah, marketing. The, but this is like, so for those of you who don't know, Tom, I, I, I want to make a, Tom, I want to make a documentary about your extended family. So Tom is from like, one, uh, one, one of like I think ten, right? I'm not. I'm, is it? Are you? You got ten? Nine, nine kids. Nine, nine kids. Nine kids. And uh, Tom's brother in was one of the people that invented the the optical mouse, or invented one of the optical mice. Excuse me, invented one of the optical mice. Uh, right. The um, but I, that, I had no idea that your wife worked at the four thirty two. That's great. Um, yeah. And yeah. on the marketing department, man, no wonder she was at Sun. She must have been like, hey, are, you, are they hiring over there? Because, like, <laughs> I got to tell you, marketing this thing is not fun. <laughs> yeah. That is, that is great. Do, so do you have 432 manuals, or does she not allow those? Are those not permitted in your collection? Uh, I do not have any manuals. I have several of the chips encased in Lucite. You've got the several of the 432 chips. Yes. Because they were like handouts, because they couldn't actually sell them, so they put them in blue site. <laughs> I imagine that hurts the heat dissipation. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, you have no problem problem powering them. Uh, that's amazing! Oh my gosh! Wow! Uh, okay, uh, yeah, but. but uh, um, so I know there are a couple of other people that were, yeah, that, uh, and trying to get a couple other people that were joined as, as so chime in here, folks. If you have any memories of Spark. Yeah, yeah, yes. Uh, I'm too young to even remember Spark or even close to that. But but I have a question uh, on the follow up on the uh, uh, why Spark question. So um, my mentor, who they used to smuggle books from the states to the Soviet Union back in the day, that includes a lot of the Unix manuals. And one of the discs that I found when he, you know gave me everything that he had was something of a video of Bill Joy in the 80s and uh, I, w I just tried to find it and it has even less than a thousand view. I, I was trying to YouTube to search on YouTube the open system sorry, the open group imperative but apparently the video is called the open uh, system imperative and uh, uh, the thing that I just remembered about it is that he was talking about that because a Spark has a lot of registers it would allow uh, more performance for high-level programming languages and including machine learning in the future. That, that's what he said when I, when I watched the video years ago. Uh, I still don't understand that. Like, did they actually have this kind of a vision when they were building a spark? <laughs> Tom, that's, Tom, that one's going to you. That's, I, wow. Yeah. I do not recall any, any discussion of machine learning in the 80s. I remember... Uh, you know, AI was still talked about by all the Lisp people, but that was that never went anywhere. But if until we're the nineties, until the nineties, then AI became American Idol. 
if we're going to praise though Bill Joy, we're going to have to DC balance him with the future doesn't need us article that he wrote in 1997 in Wired that resulted in basically me having to talk my mom's book club off the roof. This is where yeah. he, he <laughs> maintained that like the robots were going to kind of take over everything. And, like, and my mom is like, no, Brian works for this company. So like this guy is clearly right. I'm like, no, mom, he's not right. Sorry. <laughs> it's like... <laughs> It, I don't know what kind of drugs he was on. <laughs> I mean, definitely visionary, though. That's amazing. Is that video online, or is that? It, did you find it available? Yes, I, I yes, I just found it. It was uploaded five years ago, and it has like five hundred viewers. And uh, I'll share it on Twitter as well. I'd, I'd be very happy to hear stories about how they thought it would be and how it became. And I just found it that they also had an idea of a universal binary that that would work on all Unix machines. Interesting. Now, that's an idea that... I, I mean, that's the jar, isn't it? You could, yeah, Java. <laughs> you, you could argue that that's the AS400, though. That is the System 38 at IBM did that and had... I mean, they actually did an amazing architectural transformation to power um, and without changing their binaries because they did have... The, I mean, that this is the, the future system work that turned into System 38 that turned into AS400. I know that I'm like... I'm an, a, an AS400 fan, but... <laughs> The uh, we were asked when we were when at Oxide we were we were raising around and we were asked for the the best analog for uh, for Oxide like what's what's a historical analog for Oxide and before my brain could really get a hold of my mouth AS four hundred was out there I'm like the IBM AS four hundred and the PC firm was like what like what the fuck hole am I going to have to dig myself out of and explain? It's like, no, you're not. Oh, okay. No, I'm not trying to raise money for the IBM AS400. Is that a very good idea? But, I, don't, I don't know, Brian. They may have had a nice architecture, but you don't need much to run RPG. That is fair. You know what I liked about the AS400 is I just loved that it was, it, that it was deliberate hardware software co-design. I know I have once again put myself in the position of needing to defend the AS400, yeah, yeah. but I, I did love that aspect of it. And it's, so, Tom, yeah, but, to, to, to answer this question, like, how much were people thinking about like the what applications would look like in the? Because that's what that is kind of amazing that Bill was thinking that far in advance or was on esoteric drugs. Yeah, well, well, Bill was all. I mean, Bill is amazing. He's he's clearly the smartest person I've ever known. But you know you never know what time scale he's operating in, whether he's telling you to do something for tomorrow or for the next century. <laughs> That's funny. Right. You, you, you don't actually, uh, this is like, I had a, uh, worked for a guy once who would claim that he was speaking in the optative voice, which is a Greek voice in which you refer to something in the future as if it's the present. I'm like, okay, but to the casual listener, it just sounds like lying. Right. I mean, can't we? Right, right. But, uh, but 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 for Spark, you know, uh, talk about chip area. That very first chip, you know, there was a some need to have multi-port access to the registers, and it was Bill who came up with the three-dimensional layout of the chip, hmm. which had apparently never been done by anybody. And so he, he multiple layers of wires to get at the registers. And of course, that's normal these days, but back then it blew people's minds. So that was the first non-planar chip. I don't know if it's really the first, but it was certainly not standard practice for what we were doing. And Tom, when is this? This is like eighty-eight, eighty-seven, eighty-seven. 
What was the, the were you part of the discussion? Of course, well, yeah. well, bef- well before that, 87 is when it shipped, so probably late 85, he was thinking these things. When do you, we, how early in Sun's history were people talking about doing their own CPU? Asking for a friend. <laughs> um, <laughs> pretty early, you know, Bill was from Berkeley. Berkeley was doing risk, so it was clearly an interesting idea, and Motorola was not being very aggressive with clock speeds. Huh. So, you know, um, it was very ballsy to do it, because, you know, geez, it's not like we weren't doing everything else as well. Yeah, l- listen to that last part. Well, which part? That we, that we should do it? I, that's what I heard. I heard what Tom saying is, if you're <laughs> contemplating your own silicon, you should absolutely do it. That's, is that not what... what that? <laughs> That's that's the moral of the story, I think, right? I think it like, oh, wait a minute, oh, we're at Sparks Wake. Never mind. Hold on. Wait, what? <laughs> wait, true. where am I again? Hey, right. hey, Brian, I know I know a guy who's putting together a team to do a C- CPUs, so we should talk. There you go. Well, actually, the the, the one, you, if you could please ask him to dedicate his his intellectual capabilities to a secure microcontroller, we would really like that. It is <laughs> it, secure hardware, as it turns out, is really really hard, and uh, we, we've we. We talked about it last week, but the vulnerability that Laura found was, um, and that that, that uh, oh, yeah. uh, did a lot of work on. I think it showed just how complicated it is to make things really secure. As it turns out, well, I think I think we've all learned it's impossible to make things really secure. You, you could do a lot better, but but uh, somebody's going to find a bug. Well, yeah, and I think that I mean I do feel that we. You know the the focus of microprocessor development has really shifted, where it's like it's performance. It, it's not just per, it has to be performance and like you. There are all these other aspects of the system that I don't think Spark really considered all that much. I don't know. I don't recall any real conversations around it. Um, <laughs> I don't know that we executed speculatively enough to be a problem. Like that was part of the <laughs> problem. Exactly part of the problem was that we were. I remember the early days them talking about scout threads, which I which was sort of early speculation. It was. That's right. I forgot right. about scout threads. Yeah, this whole idea of having this like literal separate thread running ahead of you, um, which is uh, yeah, in hindsight would not have been a great idea. Um, yeah. and kind of died on the one. Yeah, fortunately, yeah. fortunately they never got it working. Yeah. Um, the the other thing I, I did what so Adam, did you find Spark bugs? Uh, I don't think I did find spark bugs, Brian. Um, because I, and I'm not just actually asking that as a segue to my own, but my own spark bugs, but the, uh, shortly after I came to the company, I was working on being able to tune the system clock up. And, um, we had decided that you should tune the clock at either a hundred Hertz or a thousand Hertz. So this is the old L bolt, Tom, you remember L bolt from back in the day? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and that hadn't changed and Elbolt would wrap um, after 248 days Elbolt would become negative and system software would go haywire so my first project at Sun was uh, fixing that problem making sure that Elbolt could wrap correctly and then making Hertz configurable and again it had already been decided there's 100 or 1000 I'm like well why not higher and they're like well okay so I was like I'm going to actually configure Hertz so high that the machine no longer boots and that this was like very satisfying to me to get Hertz so high that the machine was only interrupting the clock, the only executing the clock interrupt. And I had a little Sun 4C that I cranked up to 20, <clears throat> 26,000 Hertz. And at 26,000 Hertz, it stopped at the banner message. And I'm like, all right, like that's done. 
And um, that's very satisfying. Uh, and I came in the next morning, and it was at the login prompt. And this little poor machine had been executing, like, God only knows how few instructions at a time, but had managed to boot. And I'm like, oh, this is great. And I hit the enter return, enter the key, and it immediately panicked. And it panicked because, as it turns out, Spark had a problem that was in all variants of Spark, all Sun4M variants, because it was in the RTL that got cut and pasted, whereby you could take, and you, Tom, do you, I don't know if you ever had to deal with, like, the writing to the PSR register, and then there, when you wrote the pill to the PSR register, the architecture manual, and Adam, if you've got it in front of you, you should look at the language they use because it's so goofy. You have to have several knops after the write to the PSR to quote-unquote quiesce the PSR. And you're like, <laughs> what? Like that? What stinks? Oh, oh. And, and you were getting clock interrupts? And you were getting it. As it turns out, you were not supposed, it was supposed to be the case that all architectural state was affected on the, the right to PSR and the knobs were merely to do question mark, question mark, question mark and quiesce the PSR. But as it turns out, you could take an interrupt um, and the, uh, which everyone told me, it's like, no, no, that's not it. Like you just showed up, like that's not a bug. I'm like, well, I kind of think it is. Like I got this thing kind of dead to rights. And I remember Mike Splain reproducing it on the simulator. It was very, very gratifying. I'm like, so do I get like an erratum? They're like, no, no, you don't get anything. Sorry. <laughs> It's like, do I get, I can't get like a t-shirt or something? Or do I get, no, okay, never mind. I just get the satisfaction of having found a bug in Spark. <laughs> Apparently bugs in Spark were not so like hard to find those days. Those were not like, not precious. But I had to get that one out there. As long as we're talking about Spark bugs. Um, and it, I know some other folks had had uh, asked to speak. and want to make sure that we got, if there are other any other spark memories or questions that we got through everybody? I know we wanted to be mindful of time, but also want to give spark a proper sending off. The prom really was better than everything else that still exists today. The, but that prom, that prom had its origins in the 68,000 though, right? I remember having sun three fifties and you had something similar. It wasn't quite as cool as the sun four proms, but it was still pretty nifty. Yeah, open open boot started with the Sun two or three. Mitch Mitch Bradley is the man. He was all hung up on fourth. So, and I am trying to um, Rahul. I'm trying to approve you as a speaker. I just did. Okay, never mind. Spaces, come on, don't be weird. Please work. Um, Tom, was that why why fourth ended up as part of the prom? Well, the prom yeah. was a fourth interpreter. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't know what was the compelling reason to change. It's probably probably looking at CPU transitions because the original problem was all uh, 68,000 assembler. Hmm. I, I just wanted to... I don't there. have a Spark story, but I have a fourth story, so I'll save it for later. But... And, uh, I think now is the time. Hit up, hit up on a fourth story. Somebody was yeah, jumping uh, in there. Yeah. So, can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, so, hi, this is Josef. I used to work as a field engineer uh, just at the end of Sun Microsystems. So this was back in 2009 when Oracle was just about to take over. And um, I got a task to, I think it was Spark Station 5 or 10, something like that. And I got a task to replace a EEPROM battery, I think. And this 
was actually a system service processor for E10K. And uh, <laughs> it was it was really really funny amount of money that the company had to pay to have the E10K on extended life support <laughs> back in 2009. You had you had so, a, yeah, an just... E10K that was still operating in 2009. Wow. Yeah, this was this was in Finland. <clears throat> For some yeah. for some context, the service processor you're talking about is itself what a Spark Station 10 or something or, or an Ultra it, One. It is. Yeah, it's a Spark. No, it started off as an SS10. The, yeah. the little the little pilot light machine that starts the big machine. <laughs> it, it's the BMC. Yeah. It is the BMC, and it, that thing was a <laughs> mess. It was not good. Um, especially you see, if you ended up having to support it, you would know all about how uh, all about where the, the hair was on that one. Well, speaking of long-running machines, though, the, someone on Twitter a few years ago had a Solaris box that had been up for 18 years uptime. Wow. That's running and, a version of the operating system that's got a lot of bugs in it. So I'm yeah, glad yeah. they managed to survive. Tim, they probably, they probably forgot to use it. That's right. Tim, I think you were trying to get in here with a, with a fourth story. Oh, yeah. Well, <clears throat> this is a little off topic, maybe, but uh, I have a story that I, I remember reading um, about Sun Microsystems that um, somebody uh, broke the Java Virtual Machine or the Sandbox. And uh, and I always found it very creative the way they did it. They took a computer and they put it in an oven and heated up the oven until the bits started dropping out. And then they were able to break into the Sandbox. Huh. Wow. Yeah, there, I always thought that was really creative. Uh, yeah, well, if someone starts to stick, stick your computer in an oven, you may want to prevent them from from doing that. <laughs> well, usually it, you could just do that by taking the fans off. Right? That's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, and that was a precursor to a lot of our like the voltage glitching attacks, right? That we that we see today are yeah. um, are all the the kind of the, the errors to those kind of attacks. Physical attacks, invasive attacks, as we say. Or you could just yell at your hard drive. Well, <laughs> yeah, that's right. You know, it, it's amazing how many... Uh, Sun did not do a very good job explaining that if you did not uh, protect the boot prom, that anyone could basically walk up to the machine and write to arbitrary memory. Because, um, Adam, when you were... Adam and I share an alma mater, and when you were at school, did they were those password protected when you were there? Almost all of them. Although I found a few where I could I could I'd get into the prom and then uh, convince it that my UID was zero. I believe that those few that you had found were part of my agreement with the staff, whereby <laughs> I was going to share with them with a problem, and they were going to preserve on my lab machines. I was going to have the right to go to the prom. So I, th I think this might have survived me. It was very convenient. It was, the prom was so nice. Was, so Tom, what's the history of that? Did you have that at all on the 68K? Uh, I'm not sure when it came in. It, it probably came in with the Sun 3 because that was fairly major change from the Sun 2. And it, it was driven by Mitch Bradley, who was very early. Um, he also was a hardware guy. He designed the first SCSI board. Oh, wow. Like the and first SCSI Wow. And he, he wrote the first Intel Ethernet driver. And uh, Intel Ethernet was just a mess back then. I, I, was that LE? Yeah, it was a little was that, Indi little Indian chip 
no, 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 no. I meant the, the driver. Was that the Lance Ethernet? The LA? No, no, that's that got to be the, the uh, Lance. Oh. Lance Ethernet was the Lance was a nice chip. <laughs> oh, sorry. <laughs> but the 82586 was the Intel oh. one. It sucked. I, oh, I have a... I have a paper in an old Usenix called All the Chips That Fit that, uh, <laughs> that discuss some of the problems. But, wow. Uh, hey, so all the chips that fit, I want to go find that paper. Um, Josh, I'm going to mute your typing. Um, the... Clem, Clem Cole thinks that's like the greatest paper ever, by the way. Yeah, thanks. That, and so, it, was, it, it, it was fun. And so is that the cause Happy Meal Ethernet? Did that ha- did Happy Meal? That was HME, right? Was Happy Meal Ethernet? Is that is that story apocryphal, Tom, or is that is that true? After my time, after your time was Sbus something or another, right? Do you know the origin of the key sequence? The stop A key sequence, L one A. That I'm pretty sure John Gilmore came up with that. All right. I- or maybe even yeah, it's, worth, it's worth explaining what that is. Yeah, so if you hit the 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 sun key, the beautiful beloved sun keyboard, everyone needs to just take a moment. Like, is there a, like a an emoji for like wiping a tear away from my eye? The uh, <laughs> the the sun key. And Adam, you still have a Type Five, or do you have a Type Four? What do you got? You, you've got. I have two Type Fives, but with the Unix layout. <laughs> I love the I love the qualifier that like you know. Got to be the Unix settings. Like yeah. The, the, the yeah. controls in the right place. So the old school okay. Sun keyboards had the function keys down the left. Uh, there were two columns, five key. No, maybe more six keys high. I don't know, Tom. How many keys high? The um, and the key in the mm-hmm. upper left was the stop key. What was stop even for? What did it even stop? Well, it was on the first keyboards, the Sun one. It was just labeled L one. I was going to say for getting out of them. Right. So it, so the escape sequence was L1A. And then uh, later keyboards, they changed the label or something. But it was always, I think it was because that key was easiest for the keyboard scanner to find. <laughs> there was never... that's, that's awesome. And it was L1 before it was stopped. Because I always said L1A. I mean, I always, right, the, right. and use L1A as a verb, of course. Um but I did not. I, I kind of assumed that it was L one after it was stopped, but it was L one before it was stopped. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Um, and back what, when the key, back when the keyboard had a parallel interface. And Tom, you realize that if you have any of those keyboards, those are worth like. I mean, it's worth more than Bitcoin. The, 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 those keyboards are worth a fortune yeah. now. <laughs> Certainly, to the, the people that can't type without one, to, to that to those people, it's especially for like. <clears throat> Those people are welcome to come to my house and retrieve them from my basement, please. Well, you know, we were, we were talking earlier about what, what application. Dan, is that a come and take it for Sun Keyboards? I, I can't tell if that's like a, <laughs> if that, are you inciting to violence or are you, it's like a, you no, can pry no, my like, Sun I, Keyboard I have, out of my, my cold, dead hands. No, that, that means I have way too much stuff in my basement. So that, that, that's like a literal, like, to, no, come and take it. Come and take it. That's a literal. Please come and take it away. But, but, but earlier somebody was talking about you know, did, what kind of applications did we envision and all this stuff. And the real secret of Sun's success is that we built them to make ourselves happy. Huh. It, was to, it was for the software engineers to use and other engineers. And uh, that, that was the driving vision. The engineers, that, that driving demographic were the actual like engineers themselves. Yeah. And and that that's the roots of Unix, too, right? The Ken and Dennis did it to please themselves, not not for anyone else. 
I, I mean, I don't know, Adam, I can't speak for you, but D-Trace is definitely, I definitely did D-Trace for me. So I definitely, I feel like we, and and Josh, definitely, you should go look at Josh's TTY-based software, clearly done for himself, <laughs> TTY-based uh, presentation software. Yeah, no, the best software we do is for ourselves, really, sadly. I mean, not that we don't care about other people, but that's the stuff that really, uh, I think it's, like, it's the stuff we've got the best intuition about, isn't it? Absolutely, and, and born of the, the pain of those problems solved, because I, I know that you had been thinking about D-Trace for a long time, but it was also born of some of these, I think on the E10K, some of these awful performance pathologies that you were developing. Yeah, absolutely. No, I definitely I, I definitely needed it for myself. I would love to be able to develop something for someone else, but uh, the, ultimately I just have to hope. Yeah. And when, well, Steve Jobs is the same way. Jobs is developing for himself, right? It's just that he... Um, and well, I, open, open source software in general, I mean, you know. You develop it for yourself, and that way there's at least one person who likes it. That's right. That's like, well, it does actually kind of change like the scope of your ambition. You're just like, I mean, not that you're in, one isn't ambitious, but you're like, you know, at least I have developed something that I myself or we ourselves like in the world, and that's something that's really, really to be said for that. And 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 you're not going to make a take three years to do it either. You want something sooner. That's right. Right, exactly. You, you will act as your own accelerant. Yes, for sure. Yep, yep. Well, I, I think that's... Are we sure that yep. personal software is better software and not just more extreme software? Like, if you ever run a fuzzer on a fuzzer, it crashes immediately. Is, that's, <laughs> that's funny. You know, I have not run a fuzzer on a fuzzer. That is, that's pretty funny. Like, I wonder if it's just like, these are the extreme pieces of software. And when it goes really well, Scratch Your Own Inch makes really great software. And when it goes really badly, we don't tell people about it. We are telling, that's true. It could be, this is the plane, right? This is the survivor bias, right? Exactly. Yep, yep, yep. Well, I think that it might be a good note on which to uh, to leave it. I, this has been a lot of fun. Adam, has rec- Adam, you got both of these recorded? Uh, yeah, I do. And we'll, we'll, see, we'll see how it came out. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll be posting it. We'll be posting it. As soon as possible. Thank you so much, Tom. Thank you, especially to you, but thank you to everyone for, for joining us. This has been a lot of fun. If you've got any thoughts on how we can improve this, definitely let us know, but um, definitely enjoy it. We'll be doing it again next week, I think. So, Very cool. See you next time. Yeah, thanks, Tom. Thanks, everyone. See you next week. Thanks, everybody. Thank you, Tom. It's right. great seeing those early spark stories. <laughs> <laughs> thank you all. Thanks, everybody. Yep. Bye.